Brea. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the La Brea Purveya. I am your purveyor, Pete Phillips, and while La Brea is away, I wanted to keep the podcast going by exploring some themes of the show and some shows that it's often compared to. But for the July episode of the La Brea Purveya Hiatus Edition, I didn't have time to take in a whole series, so I wanted to watch a couple of movies that are tangentially related to La Brea. That is to say, they take place in La Brea, California, but aren't at all related to the show outside of that. We'll also hit on some news in the show, which has been sparse, but also silly. One thing that I mentioned on this podcast is La Brea not being so great, and it's not because I think so. If you listen to the podcast, you'll hear me defend the show quite often. But I do it because it seems like online haters talk about it a lot. For all the things that people complain about, there are aspects of La Brea that work pretty well, and we will examine some of those by way of two movies that also take place in La Brea, but by what they do wrong. We're going to take a look at 1997's Volcano and 2020's Tar. Major heads up, this is not the classical music movie called Tar, the one with the accent over the A. So please, if you're planning to watch the movies before I talk about them, don't watch that one. Although maybe you should watch that one, because I wouldn't recommend that you watch the one I'm going to talk about. First, I'm old. So it feels like 1997 wasn't that long ago, until you watch this movie, Volcano. They have some classic 90s visuals and references, so that's fun for anyone who grew up in the 90s. But ultimately, we're working with a disaster movie, and here's one of the IMDb summaries by a guy straight off the internet named Nick Reganis. Fearing the worst, the geologist Dr. Amy Barnes warns the citizens of downtown Los Angeles of an impending disaster after a tremendous earthquake takes them by surprise. With clear signs of an underground volcanic formation beneath the La Brea tar pits, the chief of the city's Office of Emergency Management Department, Mike Rourke, begins an investigation against the clock. When molten magma erupts, obliterating everything in its path, can these two mere mortals stand up against nature's wrath? Okay, so this movie opens with cuts of local Los Angeles sites, while voices from the media talk about drive-by shootings, acid peels, kooky cures for cancer, children committing crimes, famous people as criminals, destroying historical landmarks for mini-malls, all signs of societal disarray. All signs of something bubbling under the surface of society. But of course, there are things literally bubbling under the surface of Los Angeles, which is also intercut with these sites and the voiceovers. In the movie, we meet Tommy Lee Jones and Gabby Hoffman, father and daughter who live in a divorced dad scenario where Gabby Hoffman is staying with her dad in Los Angeles for the summer. It's Los Angeles. What kid wouldn't want to do that? Tommy Lee Jones is also the head of the Office of Emergency Management, a.k.a. the OEM. There's a place card at the beginning to explain what this office is, but just in case you don't understand, it is an office that manages emergencies. Anyway, in true disaster movie form, we also meet a number of other people who will all intersect at a later point. Dr. Jay Calder is working at St. Vincent's Hospital treating a gunshot wound while an earthquake happens. We meet her husband prior to that, who is a douchey rich guy who doesn't want a subway to come near his Beverly Hills property. We meet a racist cop who raises a stink after a car accident. And we meet the Zodiac Killer, or the husband from Fargo, John Carroll Lynch, who seems to be in charge of the subway expansion team. He's chewing Nicorette, and he puts it under some surface. Note, I could have sworn this was going to be Chekhov's gum, 
but it never comes back, which is quite disappointing to me. Also, believe it or not, I didn't mean for that to be a pun. Lastly, we meet the science gang, a timid duo and the outspoken default leader, Anne Heche. Don Cheadle's in the movie, too. He's second in command at ground control of the OEM. So like I said, disaster movies will bring all of these people together in due time because they're all vital to the plot. That's why we're paying attention to them. So first up, we have water in MacArthur Park that is rising in temperature, and our scientific team wants to go underground and see why. It takes a geological event to heat a million gallons of water by six degrees in 12 hours. What is a geological event? I'm sure you're aware of this, that our continents sit on tectonic plates. Great big rafts floating over an ocean of molten rock. Yeah. When they shift like they did this morning, we get an earthquake. Same mechanism can sometimes open a fissure. Sometimes magma can find one of those fissures and rise up through it. What's magma? Lava. Lava? Uh, here in L.A.? It's one of several possibilities. It is unlikely, but it is a possibility. Uh, we have a history of that here in the downtown area? There's no history of anything until it happens. Then there is. Well, thanks, ladies. Um... Enjoy your day in the park. Oh, yeah. That was subtle. What? He asked us for a hypothesis. You have a better one? Lava. Lava. This is also when Tommy Lee Jones meets Anne Heche. There's also a misplaced implication that Anne Heche is attracted to Tommy Lee Jones. What do you say? Oh, it's too dangerous. It's man's work. You're just little girlies. I can't let you go down there. I like to. I can tell. It's okay. You're macho controlling slightly superior suspicious of anyone who's not from his hometown Conway. So you like him. This is good. Yes, Tommy Lee Jones. Now, Tommy Lee Jones was not always leathery, unibrowed, and too masculine to be a love interest. 20 years prior to this movie, he was in Eyes of Laura Mars, and he was only 32 years old. At the time of this movie, in real life, Tommy Lee Jones was 23 years the senior of Anne Heche, who was 28. That's not unusual casting in Hollywood, but I do wonder if Heche brought her personal experience of being bisexual to the role because of the intimate rapport and relationship she had with her timid scientist subordinate, Rachel, who was played by Laurie Latham. When Rachel and Anne Heche do go underground, there's another earthquake or an aftershock of some sort, and we lose Rachel. There was a crack in the ground that she decided to put one foot on one side and the other on the other side and investigate what was inside. So when the crack opened, she kind of took a tumble. The male timid scientist never returns to the movie, so Anne Heche is the only scientist left. Power goes out in L.A. after this earthquake, so Tommy Lee Jones heads into work. He brings his daughter with him because it's 5 a.m., and where's he going to find a babysitter at 5 a.m.? She's playing a 13-year-old, by the way. On the drive-in, manholes are exploding, ash is falling from the sky, and balls of tar are landing in the streets after exploding from the earth. It's madness. Gabby Hoffman gets hit by some tar splatter, so she's burned, and Tommy Lee Jones has to entrust her to Dr. Calder, who we met at the beginning, if you don't remember. This is no place for her, you know it! Dad, we're going home, right? No, sweetheart, this is not a safe place for you to be. You gotta get that leg taken care of right now. But I wanna stay with you. This lady's name is Dr. J. Calder, honey. She's a doctor. She's gonna help you. Please, please, you can't just leave me. Honey. You cannot be here, and I have to stay. Why? Because it's my responsibility. Well, so am I. Please, I promise I won't get in the way. Just go. Go! Go! The lava in this movie moves really slow, but it also destroys everything in sight. It's eating buildings, vehicles, fine art, and people. 
While Tommy Lee Jones tries to help as many as he can, the racist cop arrests the guy that he was fighting with earlier in the movie, who shows up because he's trying to get firefighters to come to his neighborhood. So the cop puts this guy in handcuffs during Los Angeles melting. Come on, man. Trying to look out for his part, the Zodiac Killer finds a subway car full of dead people. So he and his team decide to pull every probably dead body out. But the conductor is at the far end, and the car is surrounded by lava by the time he's ready to leave the car, with the conductor in his arms. His co-workers encourage him to jump from the train over the lava, but if you've ever seen this guy, he's kind of big, and he's holding another person, so the jump is very short, and he melts into the lava, screaming. We also finally meet Keith David, who's in the movie as a cop. You might know him from They Live, Platoon, and about a hundred other things. Why did they hide him so deep in this movie? I don't understand. So anyway, he's a good cop who becomes part of the core team that's rescuing Los Angeles. He, Tommy Lee Jones, and Haish, and a ton of emergency responders come together to make a plan to divert the lava by putting up two levels of cement barriers, like the ones that they use on highways to make medians. And wouldn't you know it, it works. La Brea TV show Easter Egg? At about an hour and ten minutes in, we see the Peterson Automotive Museum. So, the barriers do slow the lava, but the hoses and the air support drop water, and that helps to stop the lava entirely because it cools. Phew. Except, if you've ever worked with liquid before, like trying to clean it up, you stop it going one way, and it'll just find another way to go. And sure enough, Anne Heche found it, down on Wilshire Boulevard. Come on, yeah. There is lava in the red line. Just came through on the emergency van and overtook a subway train near MacArthur Park and completely destroyed it. Is it still flowing? It stopped, but I think there's more under us. Yesterday you said it goes straight up. I've never tracked lava under a city before, okay? I, I just don't know what it's going to do with man-made tunnels to travel through. It doesn't matter. I mean, everything I've got to deal with what's in front of I mean, I don't have time to take a flyer on a geological theory. All right, but somebody's got to. I can only find what I can see. I know. Good luck. I'm going to check it out. All right. That's right, the Wilshire Boulevard of the La Brea TV show pilot. The subway under Los Angeles is acting as a lava chute, so lava is flowing there fast and strong, and it's heading towards the hospital. That's not only where everyone injured is, but it's also where Gabby Hoffman is. She's babysitting kids of injured parents, which is nice because she's making herself useful. There's actually one little blonde kid that they give a lot of overt lines to, like this one. Okay, ready, you guys? Ready? One... Two, three. Three. Rock beats scissor and scissor beats paper. I'm not paper. I'm lava. What beats that? My dad. I hope. There's only one solution. Knock down a building and blow up some roads to divert the lava into the ocean. Perfect. And after a dramatic rescue of his daughter, slow motion and all, Tommy Lee Jones, Gabby Hoffman, and the blonde child all emerge from the rubble safe. That's when the kid gets another line that examines equality and putting aside our differences. Let's go find your mom. What's she look like? She looks like... Look at their faces. They all look the same. Their faces are covered in soot and ash. They are all the same. We can put aside our differences. But then it starts to rain, and people start cleaning off their faces, which is also pretty metaphorically accurate. After crises, we do tend to revert back to our old selves, mostly out of fear. 
Don Cheadle also shows up at the end of the movie with Tommy Lee Jones's dog, and Gabby Hoffman hugs her just gross wet dog. And I say gross wet dog because all wet dogs are gross. The end. One thing that this movie shares in common with La Brea is that it is ripe with scientific inaccuracies. Here's just a selection from the IMDb Goofs section. The Metro Red Line, now called the B Line, runs from Union Station to North Hollywood in the San Fernando Valley. It doesn't go anywhere near the La Brea Tar Pits or Mid-City. Lava is exceptionally hot. That being said, it would have ignited the asphalt roads. It would not have only melted them, but it would have gone past the boiling point for asphalt and ignited the petroleum base. Literally, the roads would have been on fire. During the movie, the transit employee, or the Zodiac Killer, sinks into lava after saving the life of an unconscious train operator. If a person were to fall into lava, they would not be able to sink into it. Instead, they would rest on top and get very badly burned by the 900 plus degrees Celsius lava. Please don't think about that one too much because it starts to get very, very gross. Ultimately, he would die of shock. Not only would the ash prevent choppers from flying, but flying over the lava anyway would be suicidal. The updrifts from the lava would be a thousand degrees Celsius, and that could flip the choppers over and out of control instantly. The wall that they made out of the concrete medians was the wrong way around. If you look at the Hoover Dam, the arch is curved into the lake. This provides an arch that strengthens under compression. The arched median wall to stop the lava would have just been pushed apart under the increasing pressure. And this actually does happen a little bit in the movie. Lastly, the water dropped from the helicopters would have most likely vaporized by the heat before it could actually hit the lava. That list is basically the La Brea subreddit for this movie. People are constantly pointing out scientific inaccuracies as if it's a scientific show. The family element in Volcano is paper thin. Though Hoffman and Jones do well separately, they're just not that great together. The production is playing both actors way too young. Hoffman is 15 in real life, 13 in the movie, but even at 13, they give her very young tendencies, like she's still clutching a teddy bear in times of weakness. It's just very melodramatic. And the episodic nature of La Brea also contains a lot of family melodrama, but it feels a little bit more acceptable in TV form, probably because there's time to evolve the complicated emotions that come with family. Volcano is only a little over 100 minutes, so it's certainly faster and tighter than La Brea in trying to achieve these goals. Successes include the music of Alan Silvestri, longtime collaborator of Robert Zemeckis, and the general pacing of the movie. The movie moves, and that's great. A critique of La Brea is that it moves too fast, but given our trio of titles today, this movie's pace is spot on. Another fun part is the 90s memories that are seen in the background or sometimes in the foreground. A Payless shoe store, VHS tapes, MTV, Airborne Express, which got bought by DHL, fanny packs, looting, LAPD racism, and Rodney King, the Hard Rock Cafe, the bodybuilding boom, the Marlboro Man, billboards of the media personality Angeline, and telephone psychics. Now, when it comes to 2020's creature feature Tar, that moves at an absolute snail's pace. Yes, I could say that it's slow as Tar, but I feel like that's what they want me to say. And I will not spend as much time on this movie because it's just not good. The short version is that a family business and other tenants are being pushed out of a downtown LA office building because the city is planning to expand the subway again, which this movie shares in common with Volcano. The subway expansion wakes up an unfortunately named Tar Man, 
who is a Native American demon that seems to come out and murder anyone when he's awoken by man's progress. I could relate. <laughs> it took me five sittings to get through this movie. I had to pause and walk away a lot and then come back hours, sometimes days later. The movie itself is filled with cliché characters like a tarot card reading secretary, a bumbling unfunny moron, the wise patriarch of the family business, a greedy landlord, an ineffective son, and a business down the hall with the busty executive and her assistant who is in love with her. The son has a girlfriend too. That's pretty much her only role, just girlfriend. It would be hard for you to see any of these people because the majority of the movie is shot very, very, very dark. So you can't really see anything. This is good since the monster is not great, but it's frustrating if you came to a visual medium for, I don't know, visuals? What strikes me as the most odd part about this movie is that the tenants of the office building are being attacked because of the city's plan to expand the subway. Like, the people who are in this building, they didn't do anything wrong. They just happen to be there when the tar man is finally ready to wake up. It turns out that there is a family connection three generations deep, and the tar man should seek revenge for what happened, but how would he know who these people are? It's like the son, who was a child at the time of the incident, and then the grandson, who wasn't even alive. It's so far removed from the guy who actually attacked the tar man with a machete years ago. Don't ask. Don't ask. <laughs> The successes of the movie hang on Graham Greene, who plays an unhoused Native American who knows the story of the Tar Man. You've seen Graham Greene play a Native American in probably most things you've seen that have a Native American in them. Another saving grace is this silly ending, when the cops summarize the story that they have been told all movie. You actually said, don't f with my family. And then you shine a light on this thing, of some sort of super light. I don't know if I'd call it a super light. And the monster was eight feet tall? Or nine, ten, I don't know, it's huge. Tall monster. This is the truth. I'm not crazy like you think. Whoa, hey, we did not use the word crazy. Well, the dad needs medical, and then I think that we can let him and the girl in holding go. Yep, we can put out an APB for a tall homeless guy with a thing for tar. So if you're looking for some La Brea content, you can do no better than the show that bears its name. La Brea takes the cake. And even though no one in our show travels the subway, I thought it wouldn't hurt to offer this from Cora user Jonathan Felix when he answered a question about the safety of Los Angeles subways, or should I say the LA Metro. The tunnels were designed in 1984 by Metro engineers, taking into account nearby dangers and fault lines. The tunnels are meant to withstand up to a magnitude 7.0 earthquake. This was tested when the magnitude 6.7 Northridge earthquake shook Los Angeles in 1994, with no significant damage made to the tunnels. Metro also has placed precautions on trains as well. When an earthquake strikes, trains are automatically stopped completely. Then, trains move at 5 miles per hour or less until a full assessment of the damage is complete. He adds, it's actually safer to be in an underground tunnel than to be in an above-ground building because you are able to move with the ground as one unit. Another user added that a building couldn't fall on you if you were underground, which, you know, there could be some residual side effects from that. But ultimately, the LA Metro is safe. In the media reviews. Well, the bad news just came out pretty recently. La Brea isn't returning to TV until 2024. 
That's a long way off, dear listener. Can I keep up these hiatus episodes? I just don't know. But I'll do my best, especially if anybody, anybody at all, reaches out to tell me to do so at 570-POD-WAD-1. You can text or call or shout at yallheard.me, our email address. NBC's fall schedule announcement tacked La Brea on at the end. La Brea is, La Brea is on the agenda for the mid-season slash summer 2024. Mid-season usually starts after the new year, in this case, New Year's 2024. This is a bummer because they really seemed like they were ahead on the writers and actor strike. But maybe all the production stuff is on hold, like editing, the brilliant CGI animal production, sound design, all that stuff. That said, we are looking at a solid six months before we find out where in time Eve went to and who Gavin's sister is. Ah, the humanity! Speaking of Gavin's sister, pure speculation, some people were guessing that the addition of Emily Wiseman to the cast was to replace Natalie Z, a.k.a. Eve. People thought that the two actresses looked so similar that it must be a recast. But that only happens in soap operas, right? Where they don't even care if somebody looks like the character that they're replacing? Maybe those fans thought she could pass as an alternate Eve from a different time. But don't forget... You think if time is moving in one direction, the past to the present, but the truth is time is more like a circle. Everything's happening at once. You lost me. And unfortunately for us, that is the end of another edition of the La Brea Purveya. I hope you enjoyed this episode and how I'm trying to tie other things into the La Brea lore. If you like what you hear, then you can definitely reach out and let me know at 570-POD-WAD-1, or you can email shout at yallheard.me. Y'all Heard is the parent podcast of this show, so check that out if you're interested. And if you like what I'm doing here and what we're doing there, you can always head over to patreon.com slash yallheard and sign up at the $1 level. It's the lowest we can go for you. Thanks so much for tuning in, and if you have any recommendations of movies or media that have to do with the La Brea area, please let me know so that I can cover those in an upcoming episode. 